record myself. Okay, I don't have a podium this week, so please forgive me if I tend to drift this way, because I need to look at my notes over here. Um, so today what we're going to do is we're going to do a little quick recap, especially since there are a couple of new faces here, and then we're going to um, basically uh, try the... Um, attack the ambitious goal of trying to get through the rest of all of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus today. And I, th- I do think that's possible if we kind of go and leap some bounds here. Um, so we looked at the first two themes that we covered uh, last uh, week were uh, the themes of Eden and expulsion, both, both in uh, Genesis, and we just covered the first three chapters. And the two themes we'll be uh, diving into today are the theme of election and enslavement. You'll notice here just from the bracketing that I've done on the board that the first um, the first three basically cover the book of Genesis. Okay, so just going back and just doing a quick review. Um, sometimes just doing a quicker review, a condensed review, helps us actually to see the bigger picture um, more clearly. I mentioned how... Um, God created everything according to wisdom, and we showed how the first three days of the creation account in Genesis 1 paralleled the second three days of the creation account. That is to say, God created the spheres, uh, the realms, the, the, the sky, the land, the sea, in the first three days, and then he filled them on the, with the, the light-bearing bodies, the, um, the swimming animals and land creatures on the second three days, including man. And how uh, humanity is uh, both male and female uh, are the, um, the uh, crowning achievement of God's creation. Right? And Adam is created with uh, primarily three roles. Right? We said there is a, there is a kingly uh, aspect of uh, Adam's role, and that is to say is he was created as the image of God, and we said how the, in the ancient Near East, the idea that the, the, um, the emperor or the gods would have their images, their royal images, that would be the, the emperors or the kings, and then the kings would make images, statues of themselves, and they would spread that all over uh, their dominion. And those images would represent their rule. Right? So wherever the image is, it lets you know who's in charge, who's running the place. Well, in the same way, um, Yahweh, God, the creator God, creates Adam as his royal image and then gives him the commission to be fruitful and multiply. Multiply royal image bearers and fill the earth. Right. so that by their multiplication they would testify both to creation and to one another who's in charge that is ultimately the creator God uh, Yahweh so it's created as a as a king given dominion over uh, the entire earth under the ultimate dominion of God himself and he's also a priest he's placed in the garden which is God's sacred space right? there's a um, God's unique Presence is there in a way that it's not true outside of the garden. Now, so that you have to um, hold these two aspects in mind: that God's general omnipresence, where God is available everywhere, but God's special presence and blessing in the garden. So, if you think about it later in the history of Israel with the uh, tabernacle, God is present everywhere, but He's present in the holy of holies in a unique way that's not true elsewhere. So the garden itself is God's sacred space, and he places Adam there both to work the ground and to keep it. He, is, he has priestly duties to maintain God's sacred space. And he's also, as a third role, uh, created to be um, a husband. He's given uh, Eve as a helper to help him to uh, fulfill this creation mandate or this cultural mandate of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth. So these were Adam's roles. This is what he was designed to be. And then we looked at in um, Genesis 3, the full narrative, um, how God's original plan for creation, that his kingdom would come to earth by means of uh, godly image bearers, ruling ruling and reigning over the earth. We mentioned how in Genesis 3, that plan essentially gets derailed. Right. And Adam, in his rebellion, in his um, eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that he was forbidden to eat, um, those three tasks that he was given are all essentially inverted. He, instead of ruling, having dominion over the, um, the animals and over all creation, he, said he submits 
he submits um, both to his wife and he submits to the lures and the temptations of the serpent. He fails in his priestly role in that um, he is to guard the sacred space, but meanwhile he, he allows in this unclean animal, the serpent that comes in to challenge the authority of Yahweh the Creator. And he fails as a husband in that he has not properly uh, both instructed and protected his wife, who the serpent came to first. You, know, you remember in the Genesis account, the serpent comes to Eve first, and then Eve, when she takes the fruit, she gives to her husband who's with her. Okay, so he fails in, in these three roles. And uh, crucial to uh, understanding that full narrative in uh, Genesis 3 is very important verse, uh, Genesis 3.15, which I described as the proto-gospel, the first mention of hope in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, where in the midst of a... Um, a God-pronouncing curse, there's also this word of hope where he says, I will put enmity between um, the serpent and the woman, between her seed and his seed. Right? So there's going to be... And, and um, ultimately... Actually, the best thing I should do is just read it. Because I don't want to lose anything here. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent between your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel right. um, so ultimately uh, the hope is placed in this idea of a coming um, serpent crushing seed of the woman right. somebody who is going to um, essentially deliver uh, humanity from the one who brought sin into the world right? or in, introduced sin uh, to Eve right? and um, the two tasks the two primary roles of Adam and Eve are now uh, also placed under a curse and right? so Eve in childbearing and now gives, uh, has children through much uh, pain and Adam in his role of tilling the ground and working for food and for provision is not complicated because the ground is not easily going to give up its goods and there's going to be thorns and thistles of that as well. Now, um, so once again, to think in, in terms of creation, fall, redemption, God creates. He has this kingdom plan by which his kingdom is going to come on earth through the godly rule of human beings. Right? Um, and then it is derailed right, just through this uh, idea of rebellion against the sovereign creator of all creation. And then, and finally, in Genesis 3.15, you have that glimmer of hope. Right? So God said, you will surely die in the day you eat of it. And yet they did not die physically. God spared them. God uh, delayed judgment there. But nonetheless, you do have... Um, you do have... Um, they both died spiritually, as, as Paul later talked about in Romans chapter 5. But it also, this chapter stretches, Genesis 3, stretches our understanding of what it means to die. Right? Because you notice um, what happens immediately after um, God pronounces curse on them. What, anybody remember what happens to uh, what does God do with Adam and Eve? He right. He throws them out of the garden, right? And then there's placed an angel with a sword that's blocking every way of getting back in. Right? So there's a sense in which we should ex extend our understanding of saying death also equals exile. They've been exiled from this perfect land that God has given them. Right. God's presence. Right. They're, they're thrown, they're expelled they're, uh, from God's presence. Exile is a type of death. Right. So it expands our understanding of what it means uh, to die. Okay, so that brings us to um, where we are today, which is uh, Roman numeral 2 on your outlines. Okay, so now we're just going to be kind of jumping through the rest of uh, Genesis. <clears throat> Immediately after the fall narrative uh, of Genesis 3, what you find is essentially this um, snowballing effect of uh, what happens now that sin is in the world. Right? So it starts off with one couple, and you have, um, in the very next chapter, you have the first instance of fratricide in the case of Cain and Abel. Right? So we're covering the idea from Adam to Noah, this in-between space here. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of the story, but um, Cain and Abel both offer, offer sacrifices to God. Uh, Cain's is rejected and Abel's is accepted. 
and um, this angers uh, Cain to no end and he winds up killing his brother and when God calls him on it when God says where's your brother not because he doesn't know where he is but because he wants uh, he wants Cain to be able to articulate what he's done Cain simply brushes it off and says who am I? am I my brother's keeper? I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on here um, from there I want you to notice in chapter uh, yeah the end of chapter 4 you have a, you move from Cain himself to Cain's descendants and you move from uh, it starts in uh, this part I want to mention you have from Genesis 17 and then to Genesis 21 you have uh, Cain then you have one character by the name of Enoch and then finally you have Lamech and that's introduced in verse 23 right chapter 4 Chapter 4, yes. Sorry about that. And this is coming from... Uh, well, I'll, let me do this here. I have a little space. Um, this is coming from Cain's line. And you'll notice that things only get worse, especially in, um, in Lamech. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives... Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. When Cain killed Abel, as an act of grace, God put a mark on Cain that would um, allow people to, to recognize that he was under God's protection so that they wouldn't go and kill him. Um, and Lamech here is now boasting that he hasn't just killed one, he hasn't just killed uh, an adult. He's killed a boy for insulting him. And he's saying now, if if Lamech, I'm mean, rather if Cain was protected, then I'm really going to be protected. If Cain was, if how does he say here? Um, yeah, if, if Cain is avenged uh, seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. And if you'll notice, uh, most translations I'm reading from the NIV here, you'll notice that. Um, what I just wrote you there, uh, read you there, is um, kind of marked off in stanzas. It's it's poetic. It essentially, this uh, this Lamech is fairly twisted. He's singing a song. That's basically he's writing poetry um, to delight in what he's done. This is kind of showing the downward spiral of sin since the entrance uh, in the garden. Now. Following in chapter 5, what I want to show you here is further testimony to the destructive actions of sin in the world. You'll notice there's a further uh, genealogy from Adam to Noah in chapter 5. And what I want you to notice at the end of 6, 9, 12, 15, you have this constant refrain that such and such uh, had, gave, uh, had children and they had other sons and daughters and the last thing is, is and they died and they died and they died um, but now this is um, this is Seth's line which is after Cain killed Abel Adam and Eve had another son which, they, which Eve interpreted essentially as a replacement for Abel and that would be Seth and what I want you to notice here is there's some paralleling here in these two lines, and this is simply playing out this theme that we saw in Genesis 3.15 of these two seeds. Okay. Cain, especially by his actions, showing that he is uh, one of the seeds of the serpent. And then you have the seed of the woman, the godly line, coming from Seth. Right? I noticed in um, 5.3 it says his son was in his own image. And right, right. So there's also there's a um, a paternal kind of relationship that even between God and Adam, when God creates Adam in His likeness and image as well. So then, when Adam has Seth, He's creating His likeness and image. This is why when Luke talks about the genealogy of Jesus, he goes back and he even says um, um, he pushes it back to Adam. Then he says Adam was the son of God. Not in any biological sense, but in that parental, uh, familial sense. So now just, um, 
You also notice in verse of chapter 5, verse 21, in Seth's line, there's also another Enoch. And finally, there is another... These aren't the same people. Um, there's another Lamech, but this is not wicked Lamech, this is godly Lamech, this is Noah's father. In verse 28 of chapter 5, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son, he named him Noah, and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Um, Noah, the name Noah essentially means rest. So as Lamech holds his baby boy, he's saying, Maybe this is the one through whom God is going to bring rest from the curse of the ground and it's the same words in the Hebrew as in Genesis 3 the Adama, the ground right? he's saying maybe this is the one right? Lamech's hopes is that, uh, or that uh, Noah is that seed of the woman right? um, and while he's well finally of course he's not the seed of the ultimate seed of the woman um, which, is, which is Christ and that's the way Paul interprets it in the book of uh, Galatians um, Noah himself becomes a kind of second Adam figure. Right? And now let's just turn to this, the flood narrative in Genesis. Um, there's so many kind of um, theological landmines in Genesis, you got to know how to move around them in order not to start a, a rabbit trail discussion um, ok in, verse, in chapter 6 verse 9 it just starts and this is the account of Noah so now the, um, Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time and he walked with God Noah had two sons Shem, Ham and Japheth now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence and God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways so no, so God said to Noah I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them and I'm uh, surely going to destroy both them and the earth and then he instructs him on building the ark so you have from one, per, one couple in Genesis 3 rebels against God which leads to one brother killing his brother to lead to another person, uh, Lamech, who kills a young boy and, and, and writes a song about it. Right? And now you have the idea that the earth is filled with violence. Right? Now what's interesting is, and this is, um, this is not immediately in the text, this comes from um, kind of a statement in, in, I can't remember if it's First or Second Peter, but most commentators actually believe that there's probably more time that's passed um, between um, Adam to Noah than there is from Noah to us right? there's a lot of passage in time and Genesis is going very quickly that's why you have these kind of these genealogies that move the story along right? so the idea is there's this long passage of time and God has been gracious and God has withheld his judgment and finally he says this is, it's, there's enough right? um, the, the, the judgment now is ripe so he, he tells uh, he selects or he elects and he has mercy upon Noah and his family and he says I'm going to spare you and these are the instructions that you need to follow if you're going to survive he builds uh, he then given the instructions he builds the ark and his reign for uh, 40 days and 40 nights and uh, basically everyone everyone that's not on the ship so it's uh, women children and, uh, men, women, children, animals everything that's not on the, on the ark uh, dies and two of each kind of animal I suppose which you can probably imagine is probably in the infant stage if you can get more of them in um, and there's a sense in which the ark itself represents a kind of new creation it's a microcosm of the world it has one family it has, one, it has two of all the animals so then they can reproduce um, interestingly enough it also has three levels to inside the structure was kind of parallel the three structures of uh, the waters the dry ground and the, and the heavens above that, God, that we saw in Genesis uh, 
chapter one. So the the um, the ark itself is kind of microcosm, this small model of the entire world. Now. Um, when Noah comes out of the ark eventually <laughs> and um, finally the ship is able to uh, the ark is able to land God makes a promise with him and this is what we call the Noahic covenant right? essentially what God promises is that never again is he going to destroy the earth in the judgment the way he did with Noah and the sign becomes the rainbow um, no, what I found really interesting, I never thought about it, I read a book and kind of drew this to my attention, is um, does anybody have any kind of guess, this, I have no clue, um, any kind of guess as why the rainbow would be a sign of the covenant that God would never flood the earth again? Anything? Because maybe they haven't seen one before? Okay, so it's uniqueness. Okay. Um, in a book by uh, Stephen Dempster called Dominion Dynasties, kind of an Old Testament theology in a relatively small size, um, he points out that it's both in the Hebrew and it's in our English, except that uh, we use rainbow as, as a compound word and we kind of miss what's actually there, is that um, the meaning is that the rain, the waters of the flood, right, which is started by the rains, were essentially um, God's method of judgment, right? They were his weapon against humanity in judging them. So, um, the rain... Right? The bow is like a bow of judgment, right? So, in, talking about a weapon, it's a bow and arrow. Um... So it's his bow of rain. It's his weapon of judgment against humanity in the form of water. Right? So the rainbow symbolizes that. And the rainbow, naturally the ark, right? when, somebody, when the ark is facing you, that means that the weapon is facing you and that you're in danger. Right? And that the bow is actually bent upwards towards God. It's not facing down towards humanity. Right? So essentially what God is saying is, is that this is going to uh, remind him when he sees the rainbow in the sky that he no longer has that kind of hostility um, to, to pour out a universal judgment wiping out all people except one family. He's essentially taken the bow that was in his hand and he's cast it to the air and he's saying, I'm not going to do that. And when I, rep when I remember that my weapon is out of my hands, when I see it over there, I'll remember that I said I would never again do this. So the significance in the uh, Noahic Covenant is God is on this mission, ever since Genesis 3.15, of redeeming and renewing his fallen creation. Right? And uh, that wouldn't necessarily be possible if every couple of generations you had these upheavals of judgment that would wipe everyone out. So in the uh, Noahic Covenant, he's now saying that the, um, he's going to have a level playing ground for the, for the drama of redemption the future of redemptive history to work itself out so that the promised seed of the woman could come. Right? Um, and one of the benefits of the Noahic Covenant is in chapter 8, verse 22. Can somebody read that, 8.22? As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Right. Um, God promises now not that it wasn't necessarily true before this, but he, he elevates this to the um, status of a covenantal certainty which God does not break, that there's going to be regularity in the way, um, there's going to be a uniformity in nature. Right? So one of the reasons why we, we know that um, after there's summer, there's going to be fall and then winter and then spring, etc., etc., in a cycle, is because God is... We don't simply know that as Christians because um, of regular weather, weather patterns. But we, we can have certainty that this is the case because God has said that he has covenanted that this is going to be true. Right? That there's going to be... This actually, just as one little aside, is this kind of regularity in nature that makes science possible. So as Christians, when we say, why are certain things repeatable and, 
and uh, the things that are, are, are uh, predictable, etc., because God has fixed those things. Those things are ultimately was theologically rooted in the Noahic covenant. And God promises regularity and uniformity in nature. Now in Genesis 9, you notice when um, it says, Then God, this is verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So what is that? That's exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. So he's recommissioned Noah. Right? So he's essentially Noah has not stepped out of the ark, and, and God says to him, "Okay, um, we've wiped the we've wiped the slate clean. So now we're going to do something different." Right? Essentially, now that Noah comes out, he says, "We're going to get back to the original plan." So Adam, uh, rather Noah, there kind of fo- uh, kind of functions as this secondary Adam figure. Now, yeah. and just just for uh, clarity, in chapter nine, verse eight through eleven is where you find the actual statement of the uh, Noahic covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant with you in verse 11 right? and, and verse 9. Now I will establish my covenant. So you have the actual covenantal language found in uh, chapter 9. Now, you would think that things would now get better. Right? He's essentially wiped the slate clean. All of these foul, dirty sinners have been destroyed and the righteous, godly people have survived. But the truth is, is that um, even afterward, after the flood, when there's only one family still on the earth, and when God says, I'm never going to do this again, the flood, He says, I'm never going to do it again because um, of all the intentions of the hearts of men are only evil continually. In other words, it would justify judgment all the time. So He's not going to do it just simply on this basis. So even within this godly family of Noah, they still have... Uh, the sin problem has not ultimately been dealt with. It's still in their heart. Right? And this shows itself up because, again, generations pass. Right? And you have in chapter um, 10, this understanding of the table of nations, you have further genealogies pushing the story ahead until we get to chapter 11. And this is the Tower of Babel story. Um, can somebody read... Um, the first seven verses of chapter 11. Now the whole world came on the As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If there's one people speaking in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Um, what you find here is um, up to this point, essentially the, the, the pinnacle of, of arrogance and hubris and sin. Um, in the ancient areas, you had uh, structures that were called uh, ziggurats that essentially kind of looked like wedding cakes. They're layered. Um, and this is kind of a standard kind of look. And they keep going up, and then you have essentially the docking station there. Um, a pyramid is just a smoothed up ziggurat. It always has this kind of shape to it. Right? Um, and essentially it would be that these layers, the more traditional one with the kind of steps, were almost like steps for the gods, that the gods would come down and meet at the top of the ziggurat. And this would be the meeting place between humanity and the gods. And they're saying, essentially, let us build a tower like this, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to take heaven by storm, essentially. 
right? The gods will come down, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. Now, there's a little bit of humor in here, um, because... Yeah, in verse 5, it's, it's not funny in the English, frankly, but the, the idea is that they're building this huge tower, uh, right? They're, they're working to build the Burj Dubai. Has anybody ever seen the Burj Dubai? It's, it's ridiculous. They have to create new methods of pumping concrete because it was so high that it was, getting, it was drying out before it made it to the top. Right? So they're building this huge tower. And it says, and God had to look, he had to squint in order to see it, in order to recognize it. Right? It's, making, it's showing that great chasm between the greatness of man at this stage and the greatness of God. And one of the things that they're doing here is, the, and the beginning of the first couple of verses, I think the first five, is their actions show a uh, direct um, rejection of their commission as human beings to f- spread out and to fill the earth. Right? So what do they say? What do they say? They, um, they say, "Come, let us be- build. Let's make bricks and bake them." Right? You're baking the bricks. You bind them. It creates stability. Right? So they're saying, "Let's not go anywhere. Let's stay right here and build a civilization, so we can make a name for ourselves." Right? And God, like, is once again squints, and um, in verse six it says. Um, um, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them we should never uh, read that as some kind of uh, as if God is now scared about the capabilities of human beings but rather he's saying if they are capable of this kind of hubris and this kind of rebellion when they get together then there's nothing that they will not do in rebellion so um in confusing their languages, God comes down and confuses their language. Um, it is what I call a severe mercy because they were designed, they were created as human beings to have to have dominion and multiply and fill the earth and, and move. And um, in God's judgment, He actually winds up recalibrating them so then they can do that. They can do just that. Right? So they can't communicate clearly to one another. They get frustrated and then they just um, spread out. Right. So you have a severe mercy um, and by the hand of God. So the Lord, this is verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth because they stopped building the city. Uh, that is why it is called Babel because the, there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Then you have uh, further in chapter 11 moving from um, this account, right, this generation, to, to Abram, who we know as Abraham. Right? And this moves from Noah's story, this new uh, Bible story, from Noah to Abraham, which is the next great major turning point of redemptive history. Right? Major turning point of redemptive history. And also fits into the theme of election. Because just as there was nothing inherently worthy of Noah to be, um, to be chosen by God in order to be uh, redeemed from the coming judgment, so there's nothing about Abraham that warrants God to set his love upon him and to rescue him. And he is, he's, his family comes from the kind of people that built the Tower of Babel. Right? Um, he's coming from... Um, uh, he's coming from a pagan culture, a pagan family, etc. Um, and in chapter 12, um, verse 1, I'll just read the first couple of verses, very important. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A couple of observations here. Notice the contrast between um, the, uh, the, the people of Babel saying, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Okay? So we're going to do this, and we're going to make a name for ourselves, whereas God says to Abram, I will make your name great. Okay? 
So the greatness that that um, Abram receives comes from the hands of God and not rather from his own works and his own doings. Second thing to note, a little less uh, often recognized, is that in this first uh, three verses, the word bless, you can see it in the English Bibles, the word bless is mentioned five times. Right? Previous to this, from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, the word curse is mentioned five times of the entire span of time. Right? So, um, the author here is in this kind of literary move showing that the blessings of God are all being poured out on Abraham. This kind of this reversal. We have this long period of time of curse, 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 curse. And now suddenly all of this language of blessing is being poured out upon one man. Um, I would say that just between these two um, things that we noticed, that, um, that language of making a name, that Abraham is going to be given a name, whereas the Babel uh, people wanted to make a name for themselves, um, cursing before and now and starting in the very beginning first couple of verses of the Abraham story you have all, all this mention of blessing is what God is going to be doing in and through Abraham and his family is a response to the problems from Genesis 3 to 11 and I would say oh, specifically the problem of Babel right? the idea of this great hubris and rebellion of humanity against God right? Also, um, yes, all right. Um, I don't want to skip anything here. Okay. I have a hard time getting through the Old Testament if you don't skip anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just want to stick to these verses, yeah, because also what you want to notice in these first verses here is. Um, there are three elements of the relationship God establishes with Abraham. It's not quite a covenant yet. In Genesis 12, it's more like, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Um, the, the covenants actually are established uh, both in chapter 15, a couple of chapters later, and then later in chapter 17. But we find here the essential elements of that, those covenants, which is the way it's traditionally been uh, summarized is the three elements are land, seed, and blessing. Okay. He says, go, leave your father and mother and go to the land I'm going to give you. Okay. And he says, um, oh, oh, wait, where is he? I will make your name great. Okay, I will, I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. Okay. We know here at this time that uh, Abraham has no children. Right? His wife Sarah is barren and she cannot have children. The nation is like the seed part? Yes. Okay. Right? And then he says that not only is um, Abraham and his seed and his family going to receive blessing, but they're essentially going to be the conduit by which the blessings of God come to the nations. Right? All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Right? And one of the ways that they're blessed through Abraham is just what he said right before because when they bless you God will bless them right or bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you um, <clears throat> let's jump over to uh, chapter 15 now After this, I'm just starting at the beginning. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And that was another ancient Near Eastern uh, custom where if you did not have a, a biological heir, you could essentially select someone from your state to receive your inheritance. In this case, Abraham is making those preparations with Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 4, So the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said uh, to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him, it to him as righteousness. 
Um, from there, I'm going to kind of skip ahead and summarize. Um, the, essentially, the Lord instructs him to um, make a sacrifice, and he cuts up various animals. And this was another ancient Near Eastern practice. He cuts up various uh, animals, and he separates the pieces right, on various sides. And then Abraham, um, he, he has to fight off the, the buzzards from eating the carcasses. And he goes to sleep, and he has this vision of this smoking fire pot that's moving between the pieces. Okay? And uh, essentially, this was, uh, like I said, this was an, another ancient Near Eastern uh, custom when people made covenants with one another. They would uh, kill an animal, they would slay an animal, they would divide the pieces, and essentially both participants of the, car, of, the par, of the party would then move through the pieces, essentially identifying with the animal, saying, if I break the covenant, may I be like this animal, may I be destroyed. Um, it is interesting to note here that only God walks through the pieces here. Um, jump down to verse 13, chapter 15, 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nations they serve as slaves. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Um, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Um, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Um, verse 18 on, the, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants I will give this land and then he marks out the borders interestingly some have noted that the borders the territory that he's marking is very similar to the original kind of Eden territory it's kind of going back to the launching pad sending him back um, and what's interesting is like I said um the person who walks through the pieces identifies saying, may I be destroyed, may I be undone if I break this covenant. And God himself is doing this. And there's, I believe, a certain type of uh, designed absurdity to this practice. Uh, at least in this case. God, the creator of all things, through which all things have come into being, and it's speaking about in terms of uh, first John, uh, just first chapter of John, right? if God doesn't exist, nothing else exists. Um, your very existence right now, the breath that you breathe, is because God is sustaining you moment by moment. Right? So, um, it is impossible for God not to exist. The, so, God cannot, un, God cannot not exist. Right? Um, but that absurdity, I believe, is built into it. Because just as absurd as it is for God not to exist, it's equally as absurd for God to break his covenant. For God not to give Abraham what he promised him. Right? When God makes a promise in the context of a um, a covenant, it is raised to the to the level of an absolute certainty, not a conditional thing. Right? God's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled, um, and it's going to come about first. Right, your descendants are going to have this land. And it's going to come about that um, your descendant is not going to be your heir is not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be a son from your own body. Um, and um, the Lord believes or rather um, Abraham believes the Lord that this is going to happen but he once again he's still trying to think how is it going to happen well maybe God's going to work within the terms that I'm familiar with Um, my wife Sarah cannot have a son therefore we will work through the normal channels of our culture and I will take um, my maidservant Hagar and we will have a child and that will legally be my child and so therefore, his descendants will inherit these promises that the Lord has given me. Um, it's a perfectly reasonable assumption within the culture. You say, okay, God is going to work in this. Clearly, my body's as good as dead. It's not going to happen biologically. Um, at least not with Sarah. He has this child with Hagar, Ishmael, and um, which later on he finds out is not the son of promise. God assures him it is going to come about by Sarah. And what you find is that all the matriarchs, whether it's um, Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Rachel, or Rebecca, the wives of um, the sons Isaac and Jacob, all of them are barren. All of the matriarchs have, um, are barren. 
Right? And so, every step along the way where God is fulfilling this promise, God is pushing this promise of Genesis 3.15 further, God is showing that He has to sovereignly intervene. He is the one that is working to bring this promise to its fulfillment. Um. Genesis 17. I just want to note uh, one thing. Oh, actually, let's look at two things here. Um, first, all right, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Notice that in verse 6, he says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Uh, of you and kings will come from you. Right. Kings will come from you. That's something to remember later down the line, as this, especially even in Genesis, as we get to the end. And it's kind of odd that, that God allowed him to have the child with Hagar, because I mean it does say he's good as dead. So I mean it was a blessing from God. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. No, it is. A, and interestingly enough, even though. Um, Ishmael is not the promised child right, that Isaac is. The Lord still blesses him because later on when Hagar runs away because she's being mistreated by Sarah um, an angel appears to him and essentially promises that kings will also come from his line as well. He's not the promised line um, to which Genesis 3 15 is going to be fulfilled but God, he's still a descendant of Abraham. So there's a sense in which God is still showing his, uh, his love and saying, even though you're not the seed at this stage in history, you're still a seed of Abraham and you're still going to receive some blessing. Um, yeah. Just like Adam. Yeah, you do find, yeah, you do find themes kind of repeatedly coming up again. But isn't... Back in those cultures, wasn't the whole blessing passed through the eldest son? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had the law of primogeniture, which is um, essentially that the, um, the the oldest son gets a double blessing, a uh, double portion. That is to say, if you can break down your estate into um, thirds, the the um, the oldest son gets two thirds and the youngest son gets one third. So um, Ishmael was in this case the oldest son. But another thing which you find, once again, is God not only intervening to um, cause the matriarchs who are barren to have children, he always winds up inversing that order. Right? Yeah, so when you get to um, um, Isaac, who becomes kind of this transitional figure, a lot of time isn't spent on Isaac per se, to get to Jacob, um, when Jacob is born, they have twins. I mean, how equal can you be? They're being born at the same time. Um, but one is elder, in this case by moments but God says the older will serve the younger right? um, he inverts it to say essentially this keeps coming through in various ways God is saying I'm not doing it through your ways I'm not simply adapting myself to the ways that you would normally expect I'm letting you know that all along the way I am responsible for filling, fulfilling this promise right? um, two things there one was that um, in the promise of seed he says kings will come from Abraham and also uh, importantly he gives him the sign of this covenant right? you mentioned that the, the rainbow essentially becomes a sign of the covenant God made with Noah well the sign that God makes uh, that God gives in his covenant with Abraham is the sign of circumcision he gives the sign of circumcision which was not unique in the ancient Near East but is imbibed with a new meaning here as God's chosen people um, why? Well, I mean, in the middle one of is blessing, mm-hmm. and then okay, there's there's going to be this enslavement, right? Um, well, one is because it's kind of letting Abraham know that um, I'm giving them the land, and in principle, you're going to have the land, but you're you're not the one that's going to inherit this blessing. So he's kind of letting you know why there's going to be this time gap. And two is, um, where was that again? Chapter 15, crucial 
conditional statement he says there, which is uh, in the verse 16, 15, 16, in the fourth generation the descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Essentially using Amorites as um, a shorthand for the people who dwell in that land, right? because he's sending them to, to a land that's already occupied. Right? He said, I'm giving you a land to people that's already occupied. So, these people, the, the, the pagans, they are idolaters, um, God is going to pour out judgment upon them. Right? But it, it wouldn't, essentially saying, it wouldn't be righteous to do it now. So there has to be a delay. So God, in the process of bringing people into the land, God is both fulfilling His covenant promise to Abraham, and He's also exercising His, his justice and being right, saying now the Amorites are ready to be judged. So there's this kind of delay. God saying it's not right now. Just showing how God deliberates about these things. Even in bringing judgment, He will delay sometimes promises, delay blessings from His own children for the sake of justice. Because it would be unjust to do it now as opposed to doing it later. Um, And in the course of um, the stories of whether it's Abraham and Isaac or Jacob, you have all kinds of threats to this blessing of seed. Um, think every time you have um, one of the patriarchs go into a land and then a pharaoh takes their wife and we remember Abimelech takes this is always this is a threat this is is the woman through which the the seed is going to come through she's the conduit for this next generation next and yet she's been taken so you have this kind of uh, narrative drama that goes on saying okay what is God going to do now how are they going to get out of this um, trouble now and God continuously um, delivers them. Now, what's interesting here is that um, is there is there uh-huh. something in that maybe in that um, uh, is it Isaac and Jacob both did did that kind of kind of let their wives be taken? Is there something that they well, they didn't trust in God and say, yeah, this is my wife? Well, them? yeah, I mean, there's there's slight. Um, Difference amongst interpreters, but the majority is is that um, Abraham, you know, Abraham was telling a half truth. I guess Sarah was because I, I can't remember if it was Abraham and then Isaac or if it was Abraham and Jacob. Abraham did, and then one of his either son or his grandson did the same thing, where his wife was taken captive, and he says, "No, no, she's my sister." Right, and essentially he's using a half truth to to deceive. Right, because he says, "Well, they they." If I'm her husband and they want her, then I need to be taken out of the picture. And then either his son or his grandson just picks up the dad's <laughs> bad, bad, uh, bad mistakes. And so, yeah, in that case, there's certainly a lack of trust on whether or not do you stay faithful and say, God, if God says it's going to come through her, then ultimately God is going to deliver us from this. We just need to be honest and faithful. And, um, and I do think that there is a compromise there. Where Abraham is willing to put his wife in danger, he winds up putting her in danger, the very person who's going to be the seed bearer for the next generation, um, because he's concerned about saving his own hide there. Um, But um, now what's interesting is you can can separate uh, the book of Genesis, at least into a couple of sections here. I don't remember, I think it's 39. Um, Let me just verify this. Um of where the story turns to uh Joseph. Is it thirty seven? Okay. So then it's twelve through thirty six and thirty six through fifty. Essentially you have the primeval history from Adam to Babel. Then you have the patriarchal history, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from twelve to thirty six, and then you have uh the Joseph story taking up a, a third of the book there in 37 through 50. So naturally, it's, it's interesting, you would think that the line is going to come from, let's say, just a shorthand for this, think Genesis 3.15, right, see the woman, from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham, um, from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac, See Jacob, and Jacob has twelve sons. Right? So, so you would assume, based on the bulk of the, the section of the book, that it would be Joseph. 
Okay? That Joseph is going to be the one that inherits those promises to carry on the line. Now, there's a sense in which the entire nation is the godly seed, the seed of the woman. Um, but you would think that the, the specific mandate, the specific task, the one who's going to carry it on is going to be Joseph. But interestingly, it's not. Okay? Um, and there's all kind of reasons why this is possible. Why it, it turns out to be Judah. Just to, um, um, Judah's the one who... Um, I believe he's the one that when um, they were going to take Benjamin... Remember the case in which... Um, the Joseph story in which... Um, there's a famine uh, there's a famine in the land and they go to Egypt the 12 brothers right because they're starving and uh, Joseph puts um, they fills their bags with grain and he puts this cup that's um, I can't remember it was a silver cup or whatever it was in, in the bag and he said he essentially he frames he, he frames Benjamin who know, he knows that he is the son of his father he's basically his father's favorite other than Joseph and uh, I believe yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the youngest, and he's also. He, what happens is that he is the um, he's the son of Jacob's favorite wife, at least Rachel's wife, and so um, he knows that if um, he knows that this is going to affect Jacob most, right? And Judah, I believe, is the one that says, "My old man can't handle this." If he finds out that I said uh, basically on my own life that we will definitely be bringing Benjamin back. I'm skipping a whole lot of details here. And he offers himself instead um, to be taken instead of um, Benjamin. Of course, nothing comes out of it. Joseph reveals himself as who he is. It's not like he's taking Benjamin to kill him or harm him. Um, but what's interesting is that the end of Jacob's life... Where is it here? In Genesis 49, the end of Jacob's life, he's blessing his, his children. He's, 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 placed, he's uh, placing on the benedictions before he passes away. And um, some of them are, well, most of them are benedictions. Some of them are not so great. Um, but when he gets to Judah, starting in verse 8, Genesis 49, verse 8, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. And your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You will return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And I'll just stop there. So I'm placing this... uh, this benediction upon Judah, surprisingly, like I said, based on the, the breakdown of the actual book, um, doesn't go to Joseph. It goes, the blessing goes on to Judah, and he describes Judah in royal terms. So he says, his hands are going to be in his enemy's neck, he's going to have dominion over his enemies, and that the, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. That's royal language, that's kingly language there, which is why I wanted to make a mention of that back in... Um, Genesis 17 with Abraham. The kings are going to come from Abraham. Okay? Well, the king. So you have this kind of this this filtering, right? what I call this winnowing principle in um, Genesis and from Jacob specifically to Judah. It gets it gets further narrow as you get through the Old Testament. But this is probably the most progress within one book you find for the entire Old Testament, which is why I want to spend so much time simply on Genesis. And then from here, we'll start jumping and leaps and bounds even further. Um, Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. At the beginning of their time in Egypt, they were they were favorable, favorable status mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. So how did this chosen people that God has called out to be separate mm-hmm. not get integrated into Egypt during this time of favor, you know, when, they, when the relations were good before the... Now, what do you mean by uh, integrated? Like intermarry and, and, you know, how did this group of people not adapt the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian language and the Egyptian way of life? Right. Um, I think the at least the shorter answer would be 
that they identified themselves as is true throughout Jewish history that they identified themselves as unique and as as holy that is to say even when you're um, or to use New Testament language even when you're in um, in Egypt don't be of Egypt yeah, yeah. yeah the so they identified so they knew okay we're going to be in this city um, or in, in this land and we are going to um, work amongst the people but we're not going to marry the people um, they're not going to marry Egyptian women um, etc um, this yeah I think one of the ways of thinking about this is again in terms of what I call seed theology mm-hmm. you don't enter uh, you don't intermix between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent mm-hmm. this explains a lot how in the Old Testament you say don't marry foreigners mm-hmm. it's not because God is, is against interracial marriage it's a theological reason Right? We know in the case of Solomon, he's saying, this is what happens. You take other wives that worship other gods, and they will change your heart. Mm-hmm. Right? This is why, in, even in the patriarchal narratives, they say, okay, we, we need a wife for Isaac. Um, don't go here. Go a little bit further to my fam- where my family is, and you'll find someone there. They need to have to preserve the, the purity of this, this seed. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, is that what we look for? Yeah. Okay, just <laughs> to make sure. Okay. Um, so now let's turn, we can kind of wrap things up here. In just the first chapter of Exodus. Right? So, um, first couple of verses in Exodus give you a recap of how Genesis finished up. Right? So it names all the people that went into Egypt. And um, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous. So that the land was filled with them. That sound familiar? Look at all those key words there. They were um, fruitful and multiplied. They became numerous and they filled the land the, the land was filled with them this is once again like the commission to Adam this is like the commission to uh, Noah right um, that is to say and one thing you'll notice again in terms of the um, uh, Abrahamic covenant is where as God commissions and God commands Adam to be fruitful and multiply right? and, to, and have dominion over the land that he's given him when, and again to, to Noah when he gets to Abraham God promises him these things he says I'm going to increase you I'm going to give you a land okay? and so now God's word is being fulfilled as you find the beginning of Exodus verse 8 then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt now um, you read commentaries you go through stuff they try to figure out is this you know, can they date it to a certain uh, Egyptian dynasty? They think when they say some um, a new king, they, some commentators will argue that it means essentially a new dynasty. And because you figure if if, um, if I know Joseph and um, I'm the king and I train and I teach my son who's going to succeed me that these people are okay. Well, now if another dynasty comes into place, they have a whole different set of traditions. So you have this new king that comes in that does not know Joseph who came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, um, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So um, there's a sense in which the the Israelites in the land are, in one sense, good for the country. So if, they, if they desert us, they leave us, they fight against us and leave, it's going to be, um, Egypt's going to be worse off. So he says, we've got to keep them here, and we've got to keep them um, fruitful in the sense that they have to be productive, and, but we're going to make them, we're going to enslave them. Right? And I think the best way, and, and I'm not going to get to the rest of the, rest of the chapter, because then you immediately transition into uh, the, the um, Moses story. But I think the best way to understand this, this first chapter, these first couple of verses, is again in light of seed theology. Always keep Genesis 3.15 in your mind. Okay? You have, again, this is another uh, way of thinking about the seed of the woman 
um, being persecuted by the seed of the serpent. Seed of the serpent is not simply just like, for instance, Cain's line. It's those who are um, under the power, under the sway, under the influence of the serpent. This is why uh, Jesus, later on believing the Gospel of John, can say to Jews, Jewish leaders that opposed him, you were of your father the devil. Right? Is that, but they're saying, well, wait, we're sons, of, we're sons of Abraham. He's saying you're missing it. It's not simply by biological descent that one's a seed of the woman. Right? So anyone who's, uh, those who are um, opposed and those who are against the work of God, in this case, are of the seed of the serpent. Um, interestingly enough, and this becomes kind of poignant throughout um, Exodus, is that kind of the national symbol, the mascot, right? Well, the mascot for Egypt was a serpent, right? So it became kind of this crystallized um, understanding that these people are, this is, this is the devil's headquarters. That, that's the way that they, the readers would have understood this. Right? And if, if we accept an idea that Moses is the one writing this, Moses is writing after the events that he's recording, right? He's probably writing to people, to a generation that's getting ready to go into the land that God has, has um, blessed them with, that God has promised them. And he's writing in such a way so as to draw connections so that they understand where they've, where they've come from and where they just came out of right? and where they're going. So remember they have these temptations in the wilderness of always saying, man, they'd be better off in Egypt. We had leeks and we had onions and we ate well. And, and he's saying, no, that was the devil's headquarters. Right? This was the people of God under the persecution of Satan. Right? That, that's, what, that's what we were doing. That's what was going on in Egypt. Right? So, um, when we come back next week, we have to think of in terms of the Exodus, not simply a cool historical event, um, but rather it is God's deliverance of his people from the power of Satan. That is what the Exodus is all about. That's why it sets the... Um, it becomes the paradigm of the model that the Bible later on describes God's salvation in Exodus terms. Um, well, it starts with Passover. In well, right. I mean, I just I'm thinking when I say the Exodus, I, I mean the entire kind of complex of events that goes on. I'm just using it as a shorthand. Um, okay. Any last questions before we wrap up here? I apologize for being a talking head. I just had a lot to cover uh, today. Um, Okay, so let's, uh, let's close.